If you have your Bibles, we will be in 1 John today. I'm going to go ahead and warn you. Want your fingers, we're going to be all over the place. Uh, it's kind of an introduction. I, I like to start big picture when we start a new book that we're studying. I, I want us to have an overview uh, of the whole thing, and then we'll come back and we'll dive into pieces. So today is kind of the setup for the whole series. That makes sense? So we're going to start there. Uh, I love what we're doing. I love Promotion Sunday. I love the people that work with kids. Uh, it's, just, it's just so important and so, so, so valuable uh, because... Well, I think growing up is a thing. I, I know at my age, even, I'm, I, there's still things that I am praying and working at growing up into. And I look at my own son, who's in going into seventh grade, right? Middle school, you know, where their brains go soft. And um, I can't think right anymore. And it, you remember being there. Uh, and it, uh, it's just... It's just so exciting and so fun and so full of the unknown. We actually went and he gets a locker this year at his school for the first time. And so we went and we met the teachers and we got his locker uh, and uh, uh, that was an experience. Um, Mostly because of the other kids, right? Like they opened up their lockers and they had all of this stuff that I didn't even know existed. Like, like literally putting wallpaper in their lockers. A couple uh, young, young girls had uh, magnetic chandeliers just popped up to the top and like you open the locker and they would come on and it was unreal. I pulled my son to the side and I said, I need you to listen to me, son. Your locker is for sweaty t-shirts and broken pens and textbooks you forgot you had. Like that's what you do with, you, know, you, don't, you don't live here. It's not real life. Like, you, these people have lost grip on reality, decorating the locker. It was also cute when he was all like, I wish we'd had this stuff. And I was like, no, uh-uh. It's not real. It's crazy. Chandeliers in a locker. But they're growing up and they're learning to navigate all of these things. And, and, and what I realize is that, and I guess it's, this has always been true, right? Like, you read scripture and you look at history, it's always true that we live in a volatile world. And the letter... Uh, that John has written, uh, it's about how to have a firm foundation, how to know what is true, how to understand what real life is. And uh, it's just, it's just, it's it's beautiful and it's helpful. So here's here's what it is. It's it's about instability, how how to know how to have stability in a world that is unstable. So here's the deal. This is a letter. I believe it's a letter. Not everybody classifies it as a letter, but this guy named John uh, wrote us this letter. It's missing some of the, the primary markers that we would see of letters or even other letters in the Bible. Uh, it doesn't have this intro like, hey, I am so-and-so writing to so-and-so. Greetings. Like, First John's missing that. Second John and Third John have that, but First John doesn't have that. It doesn't have the normal markers of a letter, but I still think it's a letter because it's incredibly pastoral. He's, as you read it, you're like, he's writing to people he knows and, and people that he cares about and, and people that he, he wants to, he's addressing the circumstances that they're in and he wants to help them and guide them. So I still believe it's a letter, even though it's missing some of, of those marks and it kind of almost reads more like a sermon. So before we get into this, uh, I want to do a little bit of setup because I think it, I think it matters. Uh, so this is one of what we call the, uh, the fancy word, if you're curious, is epistles. If you're collecting $5 words, epistles is just a word that means letters. So it's one of the many letters. The, Bible, the, old, the New Testament is full of, of them. Uh, Paul wrote most of them. This guy named Paul wrote most of them. Uh, and uh, they are incredibly helpful. If you think about it this way, the Gospels uh, tell us the story of who Jesus was and, and what he did and have all this amazing theology. Then Acts 
Acts, you have this history of what happened to the early church. And then really you have, after that, you have these, these letters of how does what we learn from Jesus, we see in history, how is it playing out in the everyday life of Christians? And the letters are addressing those things, applying scripture to those things. And so most of them written by Paul, but this one was written, I, I believe, by a guy named John. John was, I think, this guy who wrote this, even though he doesn't sign it, uh, is pretty good evidence that it was written by the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John, possibly even the guy who wrote Revelation. Second and third John, again, anonymous, uh, it actually uh, says it's from the elder. That's just it. Like it's, but John does that, though. Like in, even in John, he doesn't mention his name very often. I think that he's probably the one called the Beloved, uh, the beloved disciple. He kind of doesn't really drop his name a lot. But, uh, so I think that this is written by a guy named John who was one of the 12 guys that traveled around with Jesus. Jesus pulled 12 people close to him. He had a bunch of other disciples, but 12 close to him, the apostle, what we call the apostles. And John was actually one of the, the inner three. There were like three. Uh, James uh, was his brother, was one of the inner three. Peter and John. Uh, uh, we know that about him. We know this, his dad's name was Zebedee. We know that Jesus gave him a nickname, him and his brother, uh, Sons of Thunder, which could be a good thing, like, hey, man, you got a booming voice and you're going to make a big impact, or it could be like, you're kind of loud. We don't, know, we don't really know why Jesus nicknamed them that, but he gave them the nickname, Son, and it's mentioned in scripture, uh, he gave them the name Sons of Thunder. He was there at some of like critical things. Uh, Peter, James, and John were at some critical things. There was this healing of, of this guy named Jairus' daughter. He was there, he was one of the three that were there uh, at the tra- this this thing that happened, this transfiguration, when Jesus is transformed and they see for a second Jesus how he really is, not when he's cloaked in humanity, but, but when, how Jesus really is. Uh, John was there with Peter and James. Uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Je- Jesus pulls him, Peter, and James in deeper into the garden as he prays before going to the cross. So John was there. Uh, and this is written after Jesus has, has been crucified, he was resurrected, and he ascended into heaven. And John is writing here. So here's the thing I, I, I want to I say uh, before we get into this, because I, th- I think it matters. I want to talk about how letters were written, how these epistles are probably written. Uh, I think it matters. Uh, and and I, don't, I never covered this before. I've thought about it a lot, and I finally found a resource. Uh, I want to put a lot of links to a lot of things. If you have the app and you look at the sermon, there's a place where I can drop notes and outlines. I'll have my outline in there, my notes, and some links to some helpful things. And it's where I got a lot of this research and resor- uh, resources. I'm going to make that. I'm going to give make sure you guys have easy access to that. But this letter, um, we know from outside sources how letters were written in the first century. I mean, it's not like we write letters. Or even when I was growing up, how we wrote letters or before that. It was, it was a different process. We know a lot from inside the, uh, the Bible letters, how it was written. But we know even more from other letters written at that time. This dude named Cicero, who's pre-Christ, he wrote an insane number of letters, very short letters. Uh, and so we learned about the process from reading his letters. Some of these uh, super nerds studied this, and uh, I say that with great affection. Uh, super nerds studied this, and they discovered that uh, uh, how they were written. Often it was, they were written in a group, like a letter would be from a group of people. Uh, and, and you can see this in, in the New Testament, Paul 
wrote most of these letters, but he seldom wrote them in isolation. I think that we sometimes think of Paul, I do anyway, of Paul sitting in a big chair by a fire with a pipe. Basically, I'm picturing C.S. Lewis in England writing letters. Like, that's what I'm thinking. He's got patches on his elbows, you know, it's late at night, and he's cracking down Romans, right? Uh, That's probably not how it went since he was an itinerant traveling guy, right? He probably didn't have a study with a fireplace because, you know, it's the first century. And so he didn't have those things. And so, so... the letter writing process was, was pretty involved and, and, and I don't think it happened in isolation. As a matter of fact, you even see in Paul's letters in 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, the other people with him. He says, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy to the church at Thessalonia. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle, apostle and our brother Sosthenes. We don't even know really much, almost nothing about this guy who Paul says that is with him while he writes this letter. Second Corinthians, it happens again. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God in Timothy, our brother, to the church that is in Corinth. And then in Galatians, it happens again. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, the God of the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Paul's not writing these letters by himself in isolation. He says, hey, this letter's from me and all these guys are signing on. Paul, Paul clearly is the primary author. Paul is clearly the primary driver, but he's not doing it in isolation. He's saying, this letter's from me and these people with me as well. So it was written, I think that's how it was written. And it's also, it was, it was, they probably seem to be written over time. Uh, it doesn't seem to be off the top of his head much. Sometimes it does seem to be off the top of his head, but not often. I think it's probably what you have is him teaching and him studying and him having conversation, him, Paul traveling or or John traveling or or being involved in church, and then he sees something happen in a letter and he takes all of these things that he's collected, all of his thoughts, all all the things that have been going on, all the teachings that he's honed over time, and he applies them to a situation. Right? He pulls together all of the things that he's already been dealing with, all the resources that he has on hand. I, I collect, if I read an article that I'm like, you know what, I don't have any use for this right now, but I, I suspect that this might be useful later, I, I drop it in an app called Pocket. Right? Paul probably didn't have that, uh, but he did probably have like wax tablets or parchments that he would scribble notes down on and hang on to the important things. We know that he's, he's quoting hymns in some places. He's collecting these things to have, to communicate to people. So when, when a situation happens, it's, it's something that he's worked on. It's something that he's structured. And he probably gets in a conversation and says, hey, listen, there's this thing going on in Corinth. Or John, hey, there's this thing that's happening, probably in Ephesus. We don't really know somewhere around Ephesus, but we don't know. There's this thing that's happening in the church and we have to write to him. I, this is what I want to say. And he begins to craft this how he's going to say it, which is why some of them are so highly stylized. It clearly a lot of effort went into some of them, and it's amazing how they're structured. First John in particular is structured in this clearly intentional way, and it is beautiful. We also know that Paul wouldn't have been sitting there writing himself because they would often hire scribes. I mean, even if you could write in the first century, there were people who were professionals at it, right? It's like me changing out uh, the float in my toilet, which I have to do this week, it's going to take me two or three days. Professional will do it in like seven, eight minutes, right? Same kind of situation. I'll flood the bathroom. I'll eventually have to call the plumber. It'll be a way bigger deal than it was now. But that's the same thing. Like if you start doing it yourself, it's going to end up costing you more. Just go ahead and call the plumber. So they would hire a scribe. Paul even mentioned this in Romans uh, 16. His I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. 
So Paul has this guy, Tertius, who's there writing this down, and they get to the end. Apparently, he was a believer, and they get to the end, and Tertius goes, I'm here too. And then they sign the letter. So they would hire a scribe to do this, and it would probably go through the way that, that most letters were written, would go through multiple drafts, right? You would say these things, and the guy would come back, and he would bring it back. The scribe would come back, and he would say, this is what it is, and he would make edits and move things around and change things, which is, I think, why sometimes it sounds so stylized, and then all of a sudden it sounds like Paul is just like, hey, let me interrupt real quick and clarify a thing. It reads that way sometimes. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 1 reads this way. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. I imagine a situation where Paul says like, yeah, they're, they're bickering over who they're gonna follow. This is my favorite teacher. This is my favorite teacher. And Paul's like, dude, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. They bring the first draft back and he's like, ah, I did baptize Stephanus. You're gonna have to add that in. So some of it sounds almost off the top of Paul's head, but the rest of it's incredibly stylized. He clearly worked on it and shaped it and molded it. Romans is just unreal how well-structured it is and how clearly designed it is, but with these moments of Paul injecting things that he wants to clarify. Unbelievable. So here's all that. I say all of that to say this. It wasn't cheap to send a letter. It was really expensive. Not only do you have the expense of the letter, which one of these super nerds actually calculated how much it would cost to actually write a letter, the average letter, not, not necessarily one of these, because these are longer than any of the other letters that we really have from that time. Romans is way longer than any letter we have. Most letters are very short. No lie, 22, 23, 24 words sometimes. Paul's writing these very long letters, and they estimated how long it would take to hire a scribe, do all the things, and the guy estimated it cost $3,700 to write a letter. Unbelievable. Yeah, I wouldn't write one either. It's insane. In today's money. Not only that, there's the travel. Because you don't drop it in the, in the Roman mail. You have to give it to a person. And they go and they take it and they deliver it. Uh, Romans 16. Paul says this, I commend you, to you my sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at uh, Caesarea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you for she has been a patron of, uh, of many and my, of myself as well. So he's sending the letter with this Phoebe and saying, hey, this person who's bringing the letter, accept her as one of your own. And, and not only that, uh, we know that when these letters arrived, they would have been read aloud. Like I sit down and I'm like, I think it's good. Don't get me wrong. I say it almost every week. You should be reading your Bible. This is a gift. Uh, but also, these letters were most likely read aloud. They were, they were written that way. They, they sound almost like sermons when you read them because they were practiced and rehearsed that way probably. But also, they were clearly intended to be read aloud. Uh, Colossians 4.16 says, and when this, letter, uh, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the churches of Laodiceans, and see, t- see to it that you also read the letter from the Laodiceans. First Thessalonians 5 says this, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. So they would have been brought into church and it would have been read and they would have had conversations and they would have debated it and they would have read it again because it's too expensive to just pass around. Not only that, not a lot of people could read, we know. So it was read aloud. These letters were designed to be read. So that means something for us. It means a couple things that I think are really important that kind of focus us in. One is this. Uh, We lose something sometimes 
if we don't read the letter in entirety, in its entirety. Does that make sense? Don't, don't worry. I'm not going to do it right now. Take a deep breath. Like if you sat there like, oh gosh, she's about to read the whole thing. Nope, nope, nope. But I encourage you to this week. It's five short chapters. You could do it. Uh, because when you read it in its entirety, because of the way these letters were often designed, even if you can't put into words what you, what, exactly what it's saying, it hits you with an overall impact, a feeling. It's designed to help you feel something. It's designed to help you understand something. Even if you can't articulate it back, there's great benefit. Sometimes, basically what I'm saying is sometimes we can lose the beauty of the forest because we're busy looking at a leaf. But both things are important, right? Studying the leaf is important. Getting down into the nitty-gritty details is important. So we're going to try to do both. So much time and attention was given to these that they deserve our careful consideration. So much was spent on getting these where they needed to go. They deserve our careful consideration. So we're going to try to do both. Make sure we understand the big picture, and then we're going to drill in and try to see what John is driving at. So the reason Paul is writing this, sorry, Paul, the reason John is writing this is it's pastoral. Uh, even though it's missing some of the marks of the letters, you, it's clear that he is trying to reach out to these people that he loves. And what's happening in, in the church that he's writing to the circumstances uh, is that there are people who used to be a part of the church who are now denying that Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah at all. They're part of the church, but they've left they seceded. Not only have they left, but they're reaching back in and trying to convince other people to leave as well. They're basically tr- attacking the church and sowing dissension as best they can. Uh, look at this. Uh, in John, 1 John 2, in chapter 2, he gets to what that is. He says, when we, they went out from us, but they were not from us. They'd been of us. They would have continued with us, but they went out. That it might become plain that they, are all, that they all are not of us. But you've been anointed by the Holy One and you have all, all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And then in chapter 4, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. But by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. They were stirring up hostility saying, hey, you know what? We don't believe that Jesus really came in the flesh anymore. He wasn't the one that was really from God and they've abandoned it and now they're going back and they're attacking the church. And John is writing to, this, uh, to these people because they are asking a very important question. How are we supposed to know what's true? I mean, John told us this. These people who were once a part of us are now telling us this. How am I supposed to know what I'm supposed to believe? How am I supposed to understand what is true when I'm hearing all of these different voices claiming different things about what is real, about what is important? They're claiming all of these different things. How am I supposed to know? And Paul writes to them to encourage them, to build them up, to to help them in their faith. And he writes to them these things. I'm going to read a few of them to you. He writes to them about joy. In Chapter one, verse four, he says that he wants them to know these things and be confident in these things to make our joy complete. We're writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. It's about holiness. He says in two, one, I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. 
I'm writing to you so that, you, that you, our joy is complete. I'm writing to you so that you won't sin. Uh, and in chapter five, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. There's a bunch of people saying, this is not the right way to live. There's a bunch of people saying, hey, you've been duped by John and these guys. We now realize something that we didn't realize before. We're, 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 we're now beyond where you're at and we see things more clearly. You should come and follow us. And John is writing to them to say, listen to me. What I preach to you is true. And here's how you can know. And First John is this letter of encouragement, this letter of assurance that what they have believed is true. He's like a father who is really worried about his kids, who some, some people that maybe are up to go good are trying to trick them into doing a thing they shouldn't, believing a thing they shouldn't, living a way they shouldn't. And he's very, very concerned. So he writes this letter. His real aim in this whole letter is that they would know, that they would have the assurance that they have eternal life. How can we be sure that what we believe is right when all these other people are claiming different things? They have all of this pressure of these people that they loved at one time, that were closer to them at one time, all the pressure of the culture. How do they know what to believe? Which makes me think that this is a letter for us. How do you know? How do we sort through what is true? How do we make sense when so many people have gone out from us who say they once believed, but now they've left us and they go out and they get, on, they get their own YouTube channel and declare they've been enlightened? How do we know that what we believe is true? How do we stay, 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 stay stable in a world that is constantly changing what it is you're supposed to believe? What it is you're supposed to value is constantly shifting underneath us. How do we know what is true and stay stable? I think this is a letter for us. So let me start this. I know this is a long introduction, but it's for the whole thing. It's like the end of the Hobbit series, you know, Lord of the Rings. It seems to last forever at the end. It's the conclusion of three seven-hour movies. It takes forever. This is the intro to a whole series. It'll take a little longer. But John, first John 1 through 4 starts this way. That which was, that which was from the beginning which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. He's writing to them so that their joy can be complete, so that they can know that what they believe is grounded in reality. And he gives them this concrete foundation. Hey, this eternal life that we're talking about, This Jesus that we've been telling you about, this access to the life of the Father, which is the only life that that God could possibly give us, this transcendent thing that you're looking for, this thing that other people are claiming to have, the right way to live, the righteous way to be, all those things that you're looking for, uh, God broke through time and space and came in from eternity into time and space and he brought his plan, he brought his message, he brought life actually into the world and let me tell you about this life. I saw it. I didn't just see it in a vision. I just didn't hear it in a vision. 
I saw it with my eyes. You saw life, eternal life with your eyes? I saw eternal life with my eyes. Not only that, I touched eternal life. This concrete reality that God is doing what God said he was going to do and that we have access to this life because he came into the world and John says, me and some other people, we were there. We watched it. He walked. He talked. This life that God promised us, it somehow became human and lived among us. And I laid my head against his shoulder one time. That's how real it is. That's how I know, is that it happened. It came in history. When we confess in the Apostles' Creed, this interesting line, I wondered about it for a long time, uh, but it says in the Apostles' Creed, it says, suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's weird that Pontius Pilate gets a shout out in the Apostles' Creed, isn't it? Right? Like, that's just weird that he would even, like, why are we bringing him up in the middle of this ancient creed? And here's why. It happened in history. In, in the middle of things happening in the world, God broke in, the plan broke in, the love itself, the, the, the eternal life that is like the quality of life that the Father has, which is everlasting and not bound by time and space, and the quality is uh, where there are no more tears. This eternal life that we have access to, we have access to through this Jesus, and I have touched him. That is the grounding of the reality. And, and, and he, I love it so much because this is what the Christian life is like, by the way. It's this... It's this Paul, sorry, I keep Paul. It's a letter, so I call it Paul every time. John uh, is saying in this letter, he's saying, he he has a lot of this dark and light. He loves contrasts, uh, but he also sets up these contrasts and and then breaks them down in beautiful ways. For example, he says in this letter, he says that, hey, listen, here's the deal. It's not enough for you just to know what Jesus said. You can know what Jesus said and not have faith. Meet people like that all the time. He also says this. It's not enough to claim that you have faith and not have love. So you can love and look like love and act loving and not have faith. You can know these things and not have faith, but you have to have faith. You can claim to have faith, but if you're not actually loving, none of these things are enough. It's not true. What you find out that that John is pressing in all of this is what is true, what is real is to know the faith, to have faith in Christ, to have the faith at a level, at a place in your heart that it affects then how you live. And how John is gonna hammer, what that that means, what he's gonna hammer is is how how you live now is you live a life that looks like Christ's, a a life of self-giving love. If you understand who Jesus is, if you have faith in Jesus, then your life is gonna look like this. The results are you're gonna have a boldness before Jesus. If you're wondering if you will be judged for this life, the answer is, yeah, one day we believe that you will. The Bible says that one day we're gonna have to give account for the life that we've lived. But if we have faith, if we have the assurance that John talks about, it means this. It means that we can stand at the judgment one day with utter confidence because Jesus is our salvation. We don't count on ourselves. This faith comes from there. We can have faith, boldness to pray. And we can recognize ourselves as a child of God. It's a pretty common thing, pretty common experience of Christians at some point in their walk to wonder, am I believing the right thing? Have I done enough? <laughs> Plagues anybody that grew up like me. Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? And Paul, sorry, John is writing to say, 
Here's how you have assurance. Here's how you know that what we are saying is true. Faith must be based on truth. Listen, we're not asking, the scriptures are interesting. It's not asking you to have faith in something that there is no way to assess and to think about it. I think that the faith that we're called to is a faith that is thinking and reasoning and that looks at the evidence. Here's one of the things that I always go back to in my entire life. Whenever I have struggled with faith, here's one of the things that's always pulled me out of it. Did Jesus rise from the dead? I believe he did. So every time I struggle with following Jesus or knowing what to do, I go back to the concrete reality that John talks about. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again. You have to deal with that. If he didn't, this is C.S. Lewis, if he didn't, then why would you listen to anything he said? If he did, then what he said was really important. And so going back to these concrete realities about what it means to be a follower of Jesus are critical. There's so many competing voices in the world today. John is writing to this church to remind them, reassure them, encourage them not to drift from their faith. So he goes to the immense effort and expense of sending this letter to assure the people who read it, the people who heard it, that they have rock-solid reason to be confident that they have eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's what this letter's about. And when you constantly apply that truth to your life, what we find, we're gonna find through the letters we break it down is that you're gonna be freed from this fear and this anxiety of living up. You're gonna be freed to properly understand and sort through your loves and desires to see clearly what's important and what's valuable, what matters. And then you end up being a refuge, a place of stability in a world that's not very stable at all for others. These kids that we're raising up, these kids that are growing up here, um, man, I, I just can't think of a bigger responsibility than to pass this on. Paul says in this, sorry, sorry, oh, is this gonna happen the whole time? I mean, it's written right here at the top. This is John. Uh, John is writing in this intro uh, about this concrete thing. He says that we proclaim to you these things so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. We heard these things and we were drawn into a fellowship, a deep fellowship with the Father and the Son. We have real relationship with the God of all creation and you will be drawn into this if you also listen to the words. God has seemed to ordain as the normal way things happen is that one generation passes on to the next generation these realities. We are pulled into relationship with God because of what we were taught and what we were told and we turn around and we tell the next generation and everybody that will listen about this God and bring them through hearing about Jesus, through believing in Jesus, bringing them into fellowship with the Father and the Son and with us. This is the beauty of what we are doing. We must have a strong foundation. Here's the truth. I do not know what the future holds for me, for you, especially not for our kids, right? Like the world's just so volatile. The best we can do is to give them, pass on a firm foundation. The way that we will do this, to bring them into the life of God, to show them the way into the life of God is by making a big deal about Jesus each and every week. (laughs) By telling them what is true, by showing them what is true, by telling them these stories. Right now, they're hearing a story of David writing this message, uh, this song, this beautiful reflection on the fact that he was given grace by God when he didn't deserve it. And God is good to do that. So we tell them the stories and then we live it out by doing that 
in community. We live it out by forgiving and confessing. We, we live it out by offering grace and receiving grace from each other as a model of what Christ has done for us. We tell them these stories. We show them these stories working them out in our lives. We tell them how a handful of disciples, followers of Jesus, changed the world. And then we teach them how to see this world. How to understand it. How to assess when so many voices are competing for their attention. How to assess what is true and what is real and how they should live. And this is our foundation. It's so important that we know and study this. That's the point of First John. How do we have assurance that what we believe is true? How do we have assurance that if we live this life, that it is the right way to live life, that we will one day stand before God and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's a letter of encouragement. It's a letter for us. It's a letter that we need because we live in an age of deconstruction. We're raising kids in an age of deconstruction where it's popular to tear down everything. We have got to give them a foundation, firm foundation to build on so in an instable world, they are sources. We are sources of rock-solid assurance. That's the intro to First John. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your letter, for John's letter that you spoke through him, that you inspired him. The Holy Spirit put these words in his mouth and in his community that he would teach us, show us what it means to be certain of our salvation. Because I get, the truth is, every day I have reasons to think that I have failed. Every day I have reasons to think that I have not lived up. Every day I have reasons to think that I will not stand before you one day and be able to give a good account. I know it to be true. So how do I know? And John does what we do as a church and points to Jesus. You know because of your faith in Jesus. You know because of the love in your heart that God has placed there for the brothers. You know because of how you live your life now. Desiring to please the Father. So as we study this amazing, amazing letter, this amazing, amazing word from John to your churches, to us, may people grow in their assurance of your goodness uh, their confidence in how to live. Their, their, their longing for the firm foundation to live that when life brings hard things and when life brings good things, we are not moved by them. But only anchored in the reality that you made everything, that we rebelled against you. You made us for you and we ran away and you responded by chasing us down to bring us back to you. (laughs) How beautiful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.